0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: What if you could communicate telepathically or move things with your mind all with an implant in your brain? Yes, this week on Download This Show, Neuralink, the latest bit of sci-fi turned reality from billionaire Elon Musk, is about to start human trials, so would you try it? Plus, Google have just said goodbye to a crucial piece of technology history, Amazon have said goodbye to millions of dollars in a court case, and should we change the way songwriters are credited on streaming services like Spotify? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture, my name. Is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Big guests this week. I mean, you're not big. I mean, you're you average high Actually, no, Cam Wilson, you are quite tall, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you know, and normal for me, but yeah, <laughs> compared to others, I guess. <laughs> Cam Wilson, Associate Editor at Crikey, but Executive Internet Boy, welcome to Download the Show. Great to be back. And Kate Webber from IT News, welcome to Download the Show.
0: Thank you so much for having me back.
1: Look, um, normally I try and like space out the Elon Musk news, but I couldn't avoid it this week. So Elon Musk has this brain chip. Well, there's a sentence I didn't expect to say today. It's hmm. called Neuralink. Well, let's just start off with what it is, because it's just gotten FDA approval in the US for human trials. Which, you know, feels like the first five minutes of a dystopian sci-fi movie. But let's just talk about exactly what it is, Kate.
0: Yeah, so essentially it's right there in the name. It's like Brain Implant. So it's basically, from what I understand, like queen-sized. And it's made up of thousands of like splice threads that will connect to various parts of a person's brain. Connect via Bluetooth, uh, I guess, to various prosthetic limbs. And potentially help with a whole range of neurological diseases and disorders, even like brain injuries. It seems, as you say, incredibly futuristic, (laughs) pretty terrifying. But yeah, they've been given FDA approval to begin human trials.
1: And I think what you sort of allude to there is there is enormous potential, right, Cam? I mean, there are different ways in which this could really change people's lives. Credit where it's due.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, definitely. So, I mean, these kinds of brain implants already exist. The why there's so much hype around uh, Neuralink is because I think you know they throw out numbers. It's a hundred times better or something. But it's it's generally recognised that if this does actually work, it is significantly more sophisticated than what's out there. Its benefits. I mean, how it kind of works is that it's really the interface between you know the piece of flesh that we are and other devices and so the whole idea is that it can help in situations where our brain is not working well so people who have limited mobility it's a way that their brain could hypothetically or i guess now increasingly realistically <laughs> interface directly with prosthetic limbs they've also floated ideas that maybe it would help with like you know memory with being able to help people who have limited mobility to keep their kind of cognitive abilities because they'd you know be able to control things there's a lot of potential benefits of course they're hyping it up now that it's moving from animal trials into human trials i guess that's where we start to see whether it really works i'll always remember the day when cam wilson called me a piece of flesh on national radio <laughs>
1: <laughs> the road to FDA approval is actually quite long and torturous, isn't it, Kate? I didn't realise how, how involved it was.
0: I guess with something like this, you'd want to hope it's very involved, especially <laughs> with a lot of the risks <laughs> involved. Yeah, I think like with this particular implant, there were concerns maybe because it's like a lithium battery, like charging your little brain implant. Oh, I don't want I don't a want leaky, leaky battery to in my brain. Yeah. yeah, like, it, it, like a safety removal, how do you remove these like thousands of like mm. tiny little threads uh, could it lead to you know as much as it's trying to fix certain issues could it actually create more issues yeah like so many little things uh, on the path to safety so I'm pretty curious to see I think like <laughs> there's been like some of these issues apparently have been you know resolved obviously because they now been allowed to head into human trials but some of them I'm very curious to see how they want to overcome
2: yeah, there was um, talk of potential migration, which to yes. me sounds pretty disturbing, the idea that you'd put the chip in somewhere and then it would move. Uh, I don't think that's how they're supposed to work. Yeah. I, I didn't realise, Cam, that the, the process to actually implant it is done by a robot. I mean, I guess with everything with Elon Musk, I'm sure he's going to bring robots into it somehow. Naturally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's um, we do generally see them using robots more and more in, in surgery, and I guess they like, Gives more kind of being able to be more specific about it. It's all pretty high tech and it kind of scares me. But then I also think, you know, maybe to give again a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt like a lot of new medical things at first seem pretty foreign and scary. And then before you know it, they're normal. And Mm. that could. Be the path that this goes, maybe. You kind of alluded to it earlier. Okay, the the
1: idea of safe removal, and a part of me that is like, is there a little eject button that just pops it out, like like the side of your phone where you put the sharp, the, <laughs> the, the sharp, the, the, the sharp SIM wire card. in, and then it, the sim card pops out. Like, what is actually involved with removing? Is it going to be like surgery on the way in, surgery on the way out?
0: yeah I, I believe so. And as you say, like, there'd just be so many risks with removal as well. Again, as you talk about like migration, bleeding infections, especially if the implant's <laughs> been in there for a while and potentially like scar tissue has formed around it, or even the body's natural immune systems kind of recognize it as a foreign body. Although I do think they did say that apparently the tiny little threads, I think they're like smaller than like a string of hair, mm. the body might not even recognize it as an object to attack. So hopefully we're okay on that end. I like uh, the might part. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess like, this is why you didn't do yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like everything with this is a big fat might. I guess one of, the, actually, part of the, the things I guess, like when you talk about concerns earlier, I was like, oh, what about the data that's probably collecting mm. in the privacy issues? So, yeah, there's still quite a fair way to go, I think, with removing it. And to be honest, I don't know, it just seems so... Like some, I guess I'm not a visionary like Elon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> None of us. Are. It's yeah. okay.
0: From the cheap
1: seats that we are in, Cam, I mean, let's talk about the, the privacy and security concerns. Health data has become a, a highly sought after commodity. This is health data gleaned from the very inside of
2: your skull. That's not invaluable. Uh, yep, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, like the whole point is that they could collect more information, but also the flip side of being able to literally interface with your brain, that's pretty concerning as well. You know, if your Neuralink is able to connect to other things, and that means that other things are going to be able to connect to it, and then maybe things that you didn't hope that would connect to it, like people trying to, to hack it to exploit these things. You know, I imagine this would be a uh, quite a target for them. I have been very positive so far, but I do think it's probably at this point that we should mention that uh, Elon Musk and his approach to products rolling out and safety, he probably doesn't have the world's best reputation from the uh, Tesla auto-driving aspects to the way that uh, he has led Twitter and its kind of technological deterioration. While in other things like a social media platform, if that glitches out, not a huge issue. If your brain glitches out, Bit of an issue. Small issue, yeah. I mean, the I guess the
1: inverse of that, he, he has talked about the potential and I, I feel like we can't n- finish this conversation without talking about what Elon Musk calls high-bandwidth telepathic communication. <laughs>
0: okay. I thought I must have, like, hallucinated when I read that he said that because I was like, what? No. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Is my
1: implant malfunctioning right now? <laughs> yeah. I like that it's high bandwidth. None of this dial-up telepathy. Yeah, yeah. I
0: was like. Less of oh my god, that's insane! But yeah, I imagine that would be something he's envisioning for this technology. When that will happen, well, I guess we've got to get past human trials, but that would be kind of insane if I guess maybe me and you we both had these implants and I could telepathically mm. tell you like
1: it'd be pretty boring, right? I yeah, just putting it out. There. Yeah, <laughs> see, Mark's out there in the studio and the two of them just looked at each other and laughed. It was like, What's going on? What's, what's
2: happening? Also, I just I'm really curious. The people who are going to put themselves their hands up—I think we could probably imagine who they are. There's a lot of fanboys out there. I mean, you'd have to say it's a pretty big, pretty big leap to say. Do you know what? I'll be the first person to whack one of these in my brain.
1: Yes, there is the the Elon Musk first adopter fanboy cohort, but I, I do think one thing that I guess in all of the dystopian and the telepathy conversations. The thing I always come back to is there is enormous potential within this to make lives better for people who um, are operating with a physical disability, cognitive uh, issues. So I think, you know, the potential thing about it, of all the random things that Elon Musk has plied his billions to, this is the one where I can kind of go. You know, there's enormous potential here to change people's lives, provided, you know, we work through the 50,000 caveats first. <laughs> All right, download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. What up? Our guest this week, Kate Webber from IT News and Cam Wilson, who is the associate editor of Crikey. R.I.P. Google Chromecast. Why is Google killing the the little dongle that you would plug into your TV and you could uh, cast things from your
2: Google Chrome up to your television? Why are they killing that? So I think they're killing... Chromecast, or at least the original Chromecast, just because it's been a while, you know, time to put it out to pasture. And They've been around for, I think, for more than a decade now, and it's gone through several iterations. It's a loss that I'm probably going to mourn. Like, actually, this weekend, I moved to a new place and, and brought out my TV. And when I got it out, I, I hadn't got it out of my last place, I just like plugged in the Chromecast. And I was like, this is so easy and, and something that is happening less and less with tech products, which now kind of have to do everything. But when you get these tech products, like TVs, which have smart TV features built into them, that means it's often like, you know, it's it's X brand, all these different brands doing it in their own version of it versus just this very easy, you know, simple thing that you can kind of, you know, plug in that makes it more modular, makes it much easier to me to kind of easily replace, upgrade if you need to, or just stick with it. So they have kind of said, we're now no longer supporting it. Now, you can still use them, but it means that they won't get any support and they'll slowly degrade. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the magic of them is that they're very, very simple. They still work. Although they're out of support, I'm still using one. So if you've never used one before, the, the process was fairly simple. You, the, you plug them into the little
1: HDMI port at the back of your TV and it would mirror whatever was showing on your Google Chrome, which is a, a browser, on your you know phone or laptop. Is it one of those, like, if you look back over the history of technology, there's always kind of like things that in retrospect look obviously interim. I think about like laser discs and VCDs and, uh, and you know, mini discs, you, these things you look back and go, you were obviously not long for this world. And you were sort of like holding us in between CDs and Spotify, you know, like, and I wonder like the long view of history, are we going to look at the Chromecast or something like that? Like you were obviously an interim between super smart TVs and, and watching things on, on laptops.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think it's like kind of like what we needed at that time because there was no smart TVs that we might almost take for granted now that you turn it on it already has Mm. accessibility to your stand your your binge your netflix and i think even the creation of the device itself came because i think the gentleman's wife was struggling just to connect the two because obviously at that time there was nothing i don't think it was an idea people kind of would have thought that we'd ever live in an age where everything connects from your computer to your tv and so that's like as you say that's how it came about was that little gap filler but you know, even the evolution of TVs themselves, I think the re- resolution is higher and their capabilities are, I guess, smarter, I guess you could say. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I will mourn the loss. I have one. It's not the OG, so I can still use it. But still, I think it will be kind of sad when it goes, you know, that kind of officially <laughs> a sign that technology is moving ahead. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think it'll be kind of like a sign of where technology was at a certain time.
1: You are listening to Download This Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Kate Webber from IT News. There's interesting news coming out of the UK about music royalties and how they're divvying it up for artists. Walk me through what's happened.
0: Yeah, so this one's pretty interesting for me, you know, as as a lover of music as we all probably are. So it all gets very confusing because it involves like copyrights and accreditation and everything. But essentially the UK government... Their intellectual property office has published a review and basically a voluntary agreement saying, you know, over the next two years, we're going to really establish the metadata of the songs on all of these streaming platforms. And it's pretty much going to kind of divvy up where proper revenue royalties lie from the who produced it the performer the songwriters as i said they're going to kind of roll it out over the next two years i think it'll be really great for the industry as a whole for proper accreditation because i know a lot of artists have said they pretty much get next to nothing in terms of royalty for their own work uh, i guess because a lot of these streaming platforms kind of chew up a lot of the profits so hopefully this is a way to kind of uh, equalize the music industry in the uk anyway
1: i guess credit is one part of the equation and then the money issue has has already of been there since the day dot
2: of, of spotify is that likely to be solved anytime soon Cam? i'm not exactly sure that like this is going to change the fundamental issue which is that these tech platforms and the music labels and the artists themselves are all in a constant struggle to decide who gets what part of the pie Improving the metadata, at least, make sure that it gets correctly distributed. But I don't necessarily think that that's going to mean that uh, it's going to change that. In fact, that's just making sure that the money that's for this section goes to the right place. Of course, that's kind of a broader issue. The other thing that I think is kind of useful in this, and you know, maybe we don't look at it because we're, of course, thinking about the money, but also like you know, having correct metadata is such an important part of culture and remembering culture. You know, being able to to find things, to look things up. You know, Trove in Australia, which is National Library's digital resource, is just incredibly useful. There's a lot of people out there who spend a lot of time um, uploading content, but then often even if it is available online, it's not necessarily tagged and, and and made in a way that's easy for you to find. Something like this obviously has benefits for the people directly who are going to be getting the royalties, but also for the rest of us who are now able to, you know, if you love a producer or you'll love a, a singer or whatever who's featured in a track, you can go and find more of their stuff. So I love to see something like this happening. I think one of the interesting complications that sort of gets lost, Kate, is artists aren't paid a
1: set amount and for, for their music and, and it kind of varies from artist to artist. And I think that it kind of serves to obscure a little bit, I guess, just how complicated it is that, that the payments actually work in the streaming universe, Right.
0: Yeah, I think copyright in general is just so incredibly <laughs> complicated. It's, I've tried so many times to kind of like wrap my head around, you know, who should be credited and who should get money here and there. And it's like really tricky, I guess. Mm. Like, as you say, it's, at the very least, it is a great way for historical record keeping, being able to properly credit, at least, who's doing what in a certain song. Other people potentially being able to find more work. And then hopefully for that person, that does lead to more financial benefit or work.
2: And what you were saying, Mark, I think is, is, is one actual part of why it's so hard for there to be pushes against. You often hear artists say, I actually have no idea how I, how I ended up with this much or like, mm. here's the check that I got at the end of the day and I don't really know how we got to it. The lack of transparency around that and the difficulty or the complexity is actually one of the things that stops effective, I think, advocacy for saying, you know, maybe artists deserve more. It, and one of the other kind of... Uh, complicating factors, I keep saying <laughs> complicating factors, there's no other way
1: of describing it, is the fact that uh, it's not just about the streaming services, your Spotify and Apple, it's also about your artist's relationship with their publisher, their record label. Like those relationships come into play too and and how things get paid out. And I think... I do wonder if the consumer had more clarity as to where their money was going. It might actually deepen their relationship with the music. Kind of like now I think you get, you can, if you want, you can
2: see like where your tax dollars go to. Yeah, kind Imagine of. if you could see like where your $8.99 for whichever streaming service goes to. Like where did it go to pay this month and how much went to which artists?
0: I would be curious to know how they divvy up, for example, who gets like a songwriting credit. Because I imagine, say, you know, you wrote a great song for Crikey. But what if I just swooped in last minute, said change Crikey to Spiky in one verse, and then <laughs> boom, I get a songwriting credit. I, I guess I'm just curious to see like... How much of a song input you would have to have before you can even get that songwriting credit?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean many a lawsuit has been fought over such things. Yeah, I know
0: it's it's just insane.
1: Particularly now, I mean, we are in an era where you know it's quite common for multiple people to to kind of come in and collaborate on on you know your big tracks. But I think it's very standard now in the creation of of you know high profile pop that lots of people are are involved. I also think the relationship, like how much how much certain labels are paid out varies from the size of label as well so like if you're on the same label as taylor swift are you going to get more money by virtue of that relationship and i think those those elements also have an impact on on what in you know what musicians end up taking home as well
2: cam yeah and and i think another aspect of this which is for kind of creators out there who aren't necessarily on labels you know using content like clips from songs or whatever that they think is fair use at the moment if you're on a platform like something like youtube you kind of like you always like live a little bit in fear you might take best practice, but then if there is a claim that it has to go through these, you know, processes that they have, it all still feels like in some ways picking up copyright issues is like automated, but actually like adjudicating what is and isn't fair use is not. And you kind of just want to, are we going to get to a point where maybe there's a system that we can at least automate that so everyone has a bit more certainty around that?
0: I do think record companies will probably just end up creating AI superstars in the end. I think it's just going to be so much easier for them to do.
1: I have some friends that work in the music industry and I saw them on the weekend. They were telling me about the music artist Grimes, who happens to be... Share a child with Elon Musk, and they were telling me about this this process whereby Grimes has given up her voice over to the public. Or
2: do you know the story? Yeah, yeah. So what she's done is, I think she's opened up her her voice in a. Or she said, I will enter into an agreement where you can use my voice and and create tracks, and I will get some portion of of, of the um, royalties. And so it's a kind of collaborative relationship. And I think it's really interesting because in in some regards, it's like you know treating trading someone's not just their voice but everything that comes with an artist you know their image all the stuff that we consume when we consume a track is like an instrument but also it also opens you up to like a lot of risk because like what happens if you're using grimes's image and vocals to then do something that she doesn't want to be associated with this is the kind of new world that's being made available um, both through technology but also trying to understand different uh, relationships with with the legal uh, legal relationships that we have between artists and, and other creators
1: and also um Kate, like if if we're training ai on a certain uh, on a certain artist, like say Grimes, for example, and it goes off and creates something new without her involvement. Does is she, if it was if it was taught if it was trained on replicating Grimes, does she deserve some royalties back from that? And I think it's an essential issue that uh, the writers over in the US are striking over for, for movie writers at the moment, which is like if you say if you train AI to read fifty thousand Modern Family scripts and say cool. Give me another 32. Like at what point and, and, and at what point are we saying that's an original creation by the AI? And at what point should the the original creators of, of such thing be be credited? Do you think Grimes would be owed something for having been instrumental in teaching the AI in the first place?
0: I mean, I kind of think so, but I think it kind of does raise a really good question as you were talking about, you know, where does the person end and the AI start? I guess it depends on like, I guess the legal side of it, what she's agreed to, what mm. she's happy mm. to do. With writers, for example, they might not really want to do that. Um, they seem
2: very unhappy to me.
0: Yeah, they, they seem pretty <laughs> bummed. And
2: w- w- we're already seeing this argument play out with, um, this happened with when we had all the AI image generation. And what would happen is people would say, can you generate me an image in the style of X artist? Mm. And so it is undeniably their work but like or at least their style everything that they've developed but obviously was not actually something they produced and you're getting into these like complicated you know questions about what is transformative and and also what right you have to take that information in the first place these are debates that they're trying to figure out right now particularly with these large uh, language models that are sucking in all the internet and then giving us out text often that's based on people's actual intellectual property download this show is what you're listening to
1: it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture and cam uh, amazon's been forced to pay
2: 25 million us dollars because of children yes um amazon it turns out had promised to delete uh recordings of, of people's voices through uh, alexa as well as um some of the surveillance footage taken from their ring which is a camera that you can kind of often install you know directly in your door to walk who's in front of your door and they said you know we're we're deleting them. And in fact, that employees can't access them. But according to the complaint report, that is not true. That's why we're here. They've now been fined, uh, you know, what is ultimately like pocket change. And so
1: whenever a new piece of technology launches and we're all like, they've said that they'll be, that they won't keep the data. They've said that they won't do this. This is just your weekly reminder that sometimes just because they say it's a thing they don't do, doesn't mean it isn't a thing that they don't do, Kate.
0: It's kind of sad that like in the back of my brain every time a tech company says, oh, we're definitely not data collecting. We're definitely not breaking your trust. I'm just like, yeah, wink, wink. So I think this time it just feels a little bit more insidious almost because it does involve children, Mm -hmm. especially when the parents themselves are like, gone through those steps to, say, delete this, and it clearly hasn't.
1: I mean, it's interesting that the Amazon have said that they, they disagree with the call,
2: but they're still paying out. What what, what do you read into that? I'm not so sure specifically with this one. I do know that often what happens is that there is a, um, for example, they might um, say, well, we didn't keep the footage, but we kept what we learned from the footage, like our analysis of it. Uh, and also in other cases with these big companies, I mean, I don't want to def- defend this kind of behavior, but sometimes what also happens is that, you know, there enormous. They have all this data that's going all these ways. And so the team that's responsible for it might've deleted it, but perhaps the AI learning team, which is pulled from it, didn't. So, you know, that's not to say that they are not, they should not bear responsibility. Ultimately, the whole company has to sort itself out. And if they're disorganized internally, that's, you know, their own problem. But, you know, these are some of the ways that they do end up retaining this stuff rather than just saying, you know, Amazon evil and just, you know, lie to us knowingly.
0: Yeah. I guess like, perhaps potentially they could have more very clearly stated black and white T's and C's for the consumer mm. that kind of lays out in layman terms exactly what they're planning to do with, you know, voice collection, for example, um, and all the ways that it could be used. And people have a, maybe a better understanding. I don't know if that will really change anything. But,
1: but at the same time, it, it kind of exposes this this, I guess, tension where we do happily ride on the coattails of the convenience that is gleaned from this excessive data mining of our lives? And at at some point, do we kind of have to acknowledge, like, we are benefiting from from some of the things that are being done that we are uncomfortable with.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely take advantage of the features that have often developed from stuff that we might not think about or maybe not that comfortable with. What Where I think that this kind of steps over that line is that, um, you know, if a, if a company is saying, well, we're providing you this feature and we've done it through these ways and so that's what you're kind of agreeing to, you can make that decision whether that's okay for you or not. What's happened here is that they've said one thing and ultimately done another. And that's what we're trying to, like, that's what's being cracked down on. And that's what's in fact being cracked down on in uh, Australia's proposed reforms, the Privacy Act. They're trying to make it more and more clear about the the information that you are giving over so people can make a decision. And you might say, in many cases, this is not a decision. People can't actually opt out of every single piece of technology that controls and, and monitors our lives. And I agree with that. I am obviously think about privacy. I have concerns, but I use all these products. But at the very least, you know, making sure people know what they're agreeing to has to be the first step and, and pinging someone for, for not following through on what they said they did, uh, I think is completely reasonable.
0: Yeah, I guess it always feels like technology kind of outpaces the law a little bit, as you're saying, like they're n- only now trying to do all these privacy things when stuff like this feels like it's been around forever. Mm. And maybe if consumers understood that where our data is, is actually safe, that are proper safeguards, that it isn't going to be misused by the employees mm. at You know these giant tech companies, or used for nefarious reasons. Uh, I know sometimes at a certain point we have to be like, "There's only so much you can know." (laughs) Yeah, but
1: it's sort of predicated on 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 a mutually agreed level of transparency. Yeah, and I think yeah no, and I think the thing I'm struggling to wrap my head around is. We benefit from it, no question, but you can't really give informed consent to this stuff unless you have a really clear sense of what it is that 's being absorbed and what what this case kind of exposes is what 's being absorbed by the mothership it's far beyond what I think most people reasonably expected when they installed a ring camera in the living room
2: and particularly when we 're going to be installing things in our brains yes. So you know, well that's done. the thing you need to think about. Bring it all
1: back round. Uh, and with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Cam Wilson, Associate Editor at Crikey and Executive Editor of The Neurolink in His Brain. Thank you for joining us on Download This Show. Thank you. And Kate Weber from IT News. Thanks for coming
0: back. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure.
1: The pleasure was entirely ours. If you enjoyed this program, please head along to whichever podcasting app you most likely peruse. Go to the bit where it does, like, reviews and stars and say this one. It's not bad. I quite like it. Uh, And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.